Welcome back to the Broad Body Podcast. So in today's episode, I'm going to be breaking down how I look at and analyze and go through different research articles and that sort of thing. And I'm actually going to do that by breaking down a few different research articles. Uh, So I'm going to name them, and if you want to pull them up, they should be available online, open access, free, so you can uh, pick them up real quick in a Google search and roll from there. Uh, And then you can kind of go through it with me if you want to pause and re-listen or whatever that way. that works, but having the ability to determine whether a research article is good or not is very important, especially in uh, today's day and age. So, for example, uh, going off of that, the uh, COVID vaccines, you've probably heard me talking about them or seen me posting about them on the uh, business page. Uh, here's what the research says about them. So, um, this is looking at this little thing called the number needed to treat. So with that, you are looking at how many people you have to treat in order to uh, prevent one thing from occurring or fix one thing. So when it comes to vaccines, it means you have to vaccinate a certain amount of people in order to prevent one case of whatever you're vaccinating against. So For the coronavirus, with the Moderna vaccine, which keep in mind this was the one that was uh, said to be more effective in the news, uh, the number needed to treat is 167, according to the literature, the research. So this means that you have to treat or you have to vaccinate 167 people in order to prevent one case of the virus. For the Pfizer vaccine, that one's 256. So you would have to vaccinate 256 people to prevent one case of the virus. So again, having the ability to go into research articles in depth and detail and pick out and look out different things is very important, useful, and relevant in today's day and age. So we're going to walk through a few articles here. Uh, The first one is called Four square step test performance in people with Parkinson's disease. Uh, and this was done by a pair of physical therapists, uh, Ryan Duncan and uh, Earhart. And essentially the four square step test is one of our outcome measure physical tests that we use in physical therapy. Uh, and as you know, Parkinson's disease is a type of neurodegenerative disease that impacts the basal ganglia and substantia nigra and has to do with dopamine. So going through this article, uh, again, feel free to look it up if you don't have it right in front of you. But Essentially, you want to start by determining the purpose of a study. So you usually get a general idea of what that is from the title. If not, you can usually pick it out of the abstract. So the purpose of the four-square step test in Individuals with Parkinson's Disease article, uh, that purpose is to assess the inter-rater and test-retest reliability of the four-square step test. You can also, uh, it also says to assess its ability to discriminate between on-off periods of meds, between freezers, non-freezers, fallers, and non-fallers, 
and to describe factors related to predictive uh, four-square step test performance in patients with Parkinson's disease. So three different purposes for the four-square step test article in individuals with uh, Parkinson's disease. So again, assessing iterator and test-retest reliability of the four-square step test. So essentially what they're saying there is they're making sure the four-square step test is reliable uh, between the person and between repeated tests to the person. They're also uh, assessing the ability to discriminate between on-off periods of medications. So if you didn't know, Parkinson's uh, disease, patients with Parkinson's disease uh, take medications to control different things like the uh, forward flexed posture, the freezing that they experience, that sort of thing. So they're looking at patients when they're on their medications versus when they're off their medication. And they're looking at freezers and non-freezers. So those who freeze when they walk versus those who don't. And those who fall and those who do not fall. And there's going to be more on the fallers and non-fallers in a minute. It also uh, serves the purpose of, as we said, describing factors related to the predictive uh, component of four-square step test performance in people with Parkinson's disease. So the four-square step test, as I said, is an outcome measure test that physical therapists typically do. So this is a test that uh, helps us with diagnosis to rule in or rule out different things depending on your performance on it. So obviously you need to validate that test for various populations. Because if the test is not valid for a specific population, you can't use it and you cannot draw conclusions from it. So uh, next part here is determining what kind of study you're looking at. So with this article, you might notice they're not actually doing any experimentation, right? There's nothing going on where they're manipulating things. There's no real, you know, they're not changing variables, that sort of thing. It's just kind of watching what goes on and what the patients do. So this is what we call an observational study. So they are simply watching what happens. Uh, typically, your higher levels of evidence are uh, systematic reviews, meta-analyses, and randomized control trials, or RCTs with double blinds, but obviously those are not always available. So this is an observational study. Uh, they broke down the subjects, so now we're looking at how they break down the data. They've got fallers and non-fallers, and we talked about this before. Uh, I said it would come back up, so here it is. They considered anyone in the study a faller if they fell more than one time in the past six months. So this would be two falls, three falls, four falls, whatever, in the past six months. If they did not fall, they were considered a non-faller. Uh, freezers and non-freezers. So they used a questionnaire to determine this. It was called the freezing of gate questionnaire. And if item three on this questionnaire, which was asking about episodes of freezing at least once a week, if that was uh, greater than one, meaning they had a freezing episode of more than one time a week, they were considered a freezer for the purpose of this study. 
and if it was less than one, they were a non-freezer. So it's important to kind of put some context behind the subjects because, you know, they could have set the number for falls to 10 instead of one, and then you'd be, you know, in clinic or, you know, maybe you know someone and maybe they fell twice in the past six months. Well, by that definition, they wouldn't be considered a faller then. So it's important to know how they categorize and break down the subject. So again, in this study, they did fallers and non-fallers. Fallers, if they fell more than once in the past six months. Non-fallers, no falls. Freezers, uh, they used the freezing a gate questionnaire. And if someone had more than one, the patient was a freezer. Uh, so more than one episode of freezing per week. So what is the severity of the subjects with Parkinson's disease is the next thing I would look at in this study. Because whenever you have a disease, you want to know what stage the patients are in in the study. Patients with a mild form of a disease versus a severe form of the disease are going to be very different and your approach has to be very different with them. So in this case, in this study, four square step article here, uh, the patients are idiopathic uh, Parkinson's disease patients. So they have mild to moderate levels of uh, Parkinson's disease and Remember, they had uh, the on-off medications as well, so some of them were being medicated for the disease. So looking at the four-square step test now, so getting into the test itself, there was actually very high inter-rater reliability when the patients were on their medication. Uh, the ICC, so interclass correlation coefficient, uh, was a 0.99, which is very good. So this was high. Uh, so this means the reliability of the four square step test um, within itself when the patients were on their medication, so the Parkinson's disease patients on their medication was high. Test retest reliability was also high um, even when the patients were off their medication. So regardless of if the patients were on their medication or off their medication, test retest reliability was Hi. So going back to what the purpose was, we just checked the box on assessing inter-rater and test-retest reliability. Bam. Done. Okay. So what next? We just checked the box on one purpose. What next? So we have to uh, assess the ability of this test to um, predict performance in people with Parkinson's disease. And we said the other purpose uh, was the ability to discriminate uh, between on-off, freezers, non-freezers, that sort of thing. So what we're going to do next is compare the relationship of the four-square step test to some other balance measures. Uh, there's one specifically they used. I'll get to that in a second. And what they do is they use a Spearman correlation coefficient to describe the relationships between the four square step test and all other outcome measures. You're gonna see a lot of different um, tests and that sort of thing that are used statistically. Uh, I'm not gonna get lost in the weeds there right now. Uh, for most part, you can just kind of Google these, but in this case, they use a Spearman. And again, it's nice to know what they're using because that will show you how they're comparing the data. So for example, maybe they use a t-test where they're comparing two points of data at a time. Maybe they're using a multiple outcomes ANOVA test or a MANOVA, MANOVA, 
uh, in which case you would have more than one dependent variable that was being compared at the time. So with that, uh, there was, they did find a significant difference in this article between four square step test time on the medication versus off the medication. Uh, so there was a significant difference there. However, there was no significant difference between fallers and non-fallers and freezers and non-freezers. So going back to that second purpose of this study, assessing the ability to discriminate between on-off periods of meds, between freezers and non-freezers, fallers and non-fallers. The four-square step test was, it did show a significant difference between on and off medication. The p-value for that was 0.03. Okay. However, it was not good between fallers and non-fallers, freezers and non-freezers. So there was that. The other thing they did was they, I said earlier, they used some other tests in this study. So they used the four square step test, like we said, that's what was in the title of the article. Hopefully they used that, right? Uh, they also used the six minute walk test, the five times sit to stand, and the mini best test. Uh, the mini best was the only one that really directly measures balance out of those. Uh, the nine hole peg test was also used. And this is used to measure bradykinesia, which is common in patients with Parkinson's disease. And if you're not a physical therapist or a PT major, those probably all sound like foreign terms to you. Essentially, the six-minute walk test is exactly what it sounds like, a test involving walking for six minutes. Very standardized. We measure how far you go, and we can use it to predict a lot of different variables about your health. Uh, the five-time sit-to-stand is exactly what it sounds like, too. We time how quickly you can stand up and sit down out of a chair, and we use that to measure lower extremity strength and power, among other things. Mini best, I said, was a balance test, and nine-hole peg was the bradykinesia test. Um, so the other thing, too, was you have to look at validity in the article, and in this case, they have concurrent validity. So there's two types of validity, concurrent and construct, and you see concurrent validity in this four-square step test article. So uh, basically with that, we then have to ask ourselves the question, does this mean anything? And this is something I like to ask myself with any article is, what does this mean? What did I... What do I learn by this? So does the diagnostic four-square step test change clinical decisions about, uh, let's say, fall risk? Does the diagnostic four-square step test change my clinical decision about fall risk? Because, again, we said balance, and uh, one of our purposes was uh, performance in people with PD and the four-square step test impact on that. Uh, so... Really, the four-square step test had limited ability to accurately predict falls in those uh, with Parkinson's disease. So uh, they came right out in the article and said, we do not recommend the use of the four-square step test in lieu of other balance measures, such as the mini-best test. So there you go. Um, and again, I know that's maybe not the best example to use for those who are not uh, physical therapy majors, but, um, you know, maybe you're in the medical field and you pick that up uh, and you like that. So there's one. I also want to go through a couple more here just to kind of help 
break it down here. So the next one is a clinical prediction rule, a CPR, uh, to identify patients with low back pain who are likely to experience short-term success following lumbar stabilization exercise, a randomized control validation study. And this one was Alan Robin, uh, R-A-B-I-N. So Robin, uh, ETAL, 2014, clinical prediction rule to identify patients with low back pain uh, who are likely to experience short-term success following lumbar stability exercises. Uh, so this study looked to validate what we call a clinical prediction rule. And basically what these are are um, different tests and short little things that we can do to predict your likelihood of having something or success with something or that sort of thing. Um, so we have a variety of these. We have the Wells Clinical Prediction Rule in medicine, in medicine, and this helps us rule in or rule out the probability of having a deep venous thrombosis or a DVT. Um, so this clinical prediction rule here in Rabin uh, was actually determining the effectiveness of lumbar stabilization exercise, uh, so muscle strengthening exercises for your core and your lower back, comparing that to mobility exercises. And this was all in patients with low back pain. So uh, one thing that the other study didn't really show, but this one will, is a lot of times studies will include or exclude people based on certain criteria. And again, this is something you see with the COVID vaccine trials too, how they excluded uh, women who are pregnant and that sort of thing. So in the Rabin article, they had 105 patients with low back pain, and they were referred to the PT clinics that were used in the study in this case. Uh, so they looked for subjects who were 18 to 60 years old, so 18 to 60, and had a primary complaint of low back pain, regardless of if they had leg symptoms. So 18 to 60 year olds with low back pain, and they had to have scored at least a 24% on the modified Oswestry Disability Index, which is a outcome measure that we use for patients with low back pain to assess how much their pain is impacting their life. They excluded a ton of people, anyone with malignancy, infection, fractures of the spine, lumbar nerve root compression, um, different sensation issues. Um, if they were pregnant, they were excluded. If they were receiving chiropractic care in the past six months, if they could not read or write in the language that uh, they needed for the study, uh, if they had legal proceedings, they excluded a lot. They tried to cover all their bases here. Um, so with that, when we think about nonspecific low back pain, you know, that's not associated with any specific cause. That's what they were getting at here. It could be due to muscle imbalances, poor posture, obesity, sedentary time, whatever. So I think in this study, they really did all they could. They made their inclusive and exclusive criteria very significant. They knew what they were after, and they made sure they only got uh, the patients they wanted. So uh, they did use subjects or study participants with nonspecific low back pain in this study. Great. So we like, uh, like I said earlier, we were comparing lumbar stability exercise in this article, so stabilization, to manual therapy or manipulation group. Uh, so 
basically we're comparing opposite ends of the spectrum. So with a clinical prediction rule, if the lumbar stabilization exercise helps, so stability helps, more duct tape helps, then you would expect the opposite to not really have much of an effect, right? And manual mobility, so increasing your ability to move more WD-40 is the opposite of stability in this case. So um, with that, it's kind of hard to compare things to nothing too. Like, especially, you know, in medicine, you can kind of give a placebo like a sugar pill, um, but it's kind of hard to give placebo physical therapy or f placebo exercise. Um, so in this article, we're talking about statistical analysis in the other article. In this one, they use an ANCOVA, which is an ANOVA test that accounts for a covariant factor. And just so you know what that covariant factor is in this study, if you don't know that, it's not really going to make sense. But they were looking at the baseline pain and the modified Oswestry Disability Index score as their covariant. Um, so why they were doing this is patients with higher disability are going to have more room to improve. So you have to look at the baseline because that's going to impact improvement. Uh, so they talk about um, intention to treat analysis too in this article. Um, essentially what that means is attention to treat predicts what they're doing in the study. Uh, so say you have a patient who's in the study and they drop out. Well, if you've predicted where the end is going to be, you can use a line of best fit to predict where that patient would have been at the end if they dropped from the study so you don't have to discard and throw out their data because obviously the more data you can get, the um, more powerful and better your study is going to be. Um, so in this article, um, going down to the results section now, if you have it open and you're following along with me, you're going to be looking at figures three and figures four in this article. Uh, so you're gonna have to scroll down a bit. Um, this whole article was 26 pages uh, and PDF on mine, so yikes to that. But um, so yeah, go to figure three, go to figure four and look at those and look at the results here. Look at the numbers between the lumbar stability exercise in those who um, were positive on the clinical prediction rule. Uh, look at the manual mobility intervention for those that were positive. Uh, look at the uh, negatives. So basically, in those that were in figure three, you see the lumbar stability exercise uh, with the positive CPR being the best, followed by the manual uh, with the positive, followed by the lumbar stability with the negative, and manual with the negative. And in figure four, you see that flip around a little bit. Um, so here you see the um, modified clinical prediction rule being used. And there it's uh, stability exercise for the lumbar spine with the positive modified CPR and then manual therapy uh, with patients who were negative and lumbar stability with patients who were negative 
and then manual therapy with patients who are positive. But here's the problem. So obviously we wanted to see a high success rate with the uh, patients who had a positive clinical prediction role in this case, right? Because that would say um, a high success rate for the lumbar stability exercise, because that would say the clinical prediction role is good. It's valid. It's testing what it's supposed to and the outcomes match it. But as we just see in these uh, figures here, literally look at these graphs, look at the data. These are very close numbers. There's nothing statistically significant here. So if a clinical prediction role is good, you would see patients doing great with what it's designed for, so the lumbar stability exercise, and you would expect they would not do good with something completely opposite to it. Uh, but clearly that's not the case in this study. So this is showing that this clinical prediction role does not seem to be uh, valid in that case, right? Um, so again, they had that modified clinical prediction rule too, right? So what exactly was that? Um, so what they did is they modified it to, um, they added and changed around some different tests and that sort of thing. Uh, so I'm just reading through my notes here and trying to put this into the best words that I can uh, explain it in, because right now I have it in some rather extensive uh, vernacular here. So essentially with the modification, you have the prone instability test, you have different movement factors. Um, so they, um, yeah, nothing really significant there uh, actually. So I'm reading through it now and I'm like, okay, um, basically, uh, I think that was about it for that one. Um, so essentially with that one, uh, you can see how literature can be used to validate or disvalidate or unvalidate or whatever, uh, different things that we do, uh, in health and fitness and medicine and that sort of thing. Uh, so let me see. I've got two more lined up, and we should have plenty of time on the show to do them. So I'll go over to the frailty article that I have pulled up. And I realize that the topic of frailty might not be the uh, most exciting, but it is important because as you age, you obviously lose uh, muscle and bone mass and bone mineral density. And the thought of being frail uh, is very common in today's day and age because of how little loading activity we see in people. People are very sedentary um, in general. So this article we're talking about is called Screening for Frailty in Primary Care, Accuracy of Gait Speed and Hand Grape, hand grip Strength. Uh, so this one was by Linda Lee and colleagues. Um, I don't remember when it was. Uh, 2017, published in 2017 uh, in Canadian Family Physician. So again, screening for frailty in primary care, Linda Lee. So pull that one up if you have it. Google it, whatever you got to do. Um, and essentially, this, this article recognized what I just said. There is a need uh, for a new method to screen for frailty 
because of the way our populations are trending. So we see rapidly aging populations right now, uh, baby boomer generation, that sort of thing. We see people being relatively sedentary. So people aren't as active as they once were. People aren't moving around as much as they once did, that sort of thing. So their bones aren't being loaded and stressed as much as they once were. Uh, so we're seeing the rate of frailty increase. Uh, this study, we talk about study design. This study was retrospective in nature. And there's some good things and some bad things to that. So in this case, retrospective involves looking back at medical data from the past. Uh, so the nice thing is you can get a large number of participants in your study without them having to do anything. They just have to sign a paper, consenting that you can use their data for the study. They don't have to do anything else. So they don't have to really do anything. That's pretty good. Um, the electronic records that we have in this day and age allow you to put together this info and all kinds of data and spreadsheets and that sort of thing very quick. It's pretty low cost overall. It's mostly stuff you're doing on the laptop or that sort of thing. And uh, there's no scheduling either. You don't have to get people into the lab or the clinic or that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, in this case, when we're looking at older individuals and frailty, you know, how often do you think you can get, you know, a thousand different individuals over the age of 75 into a research lab in order to, you know, conduct your research? And especially if you're doing that three times a week or four times a week or something, that can be a real difficult thing to do. But the disadvantage is the research is only going to be as good as the data recorded. You know, you can't really go back and change what happened in the past. Um, and if you can, please let me know how you can do that because I would love to do that with different things that I've done. Um, so you can't really go back and change it and you're just kind of working with the data that you have. Um, so with that, um, the um, they have some different um, tables and data in here, and you can actually calculate some different values called sensitivity and specificity. And you're probably wondering what the heck those are. And luckily for you, I'm going to tell you. So sensitivity is basically when a patient has a condition who tests positive uh, for something. And that's divided by all the patients who have the condition. So this is going to be an example. This is not, you know, accurate numbers or anything like that. This is just an example. So for sensitivity, say we have 20 people test positive and a group of, for the virus, and 30 people had the condition. So 20 people tested positive, over 30 with the condition that would give us a sensitivity value of 0.67. The specificity, on the other hand, is a percentage of those who test negative over all of those who do not have the condition. So if 30 people test negative for the virus and um, 50 people do not have it, that would give us a uh, specificity of 0.6. Okay, so in general, higher numbers tend to be 
better there, right? That makes sense. Um, so you can go through and calculate that for all the different um, variables that they have, gate speed, grip strength, uh, weight loss, um, all that sort of thing using those two by two tables uh, that I basically just described in there. Um, I'm not going to sit here and read off all these different numbers to you because I think that's a waste of your time and mine. Um, so the other thing they used is they had likelihood ratios for all the different items they collected. And, you know, we want to know what a likelihood ratio is, how it impacted pretest probability, and how that compares with what you might see in other studies. So if you're not familiar with a likelihood ratio, um, essentially this is a way to provide better information for decisions, clinical decisions, than using sensitivity and specificity alone. So a positive likelihood ratio is actually calculated by taking your sensitivity value and dividing it by one minus your specificity. Cool. And that's for a positive test result. So that's the probability of favoring a condition with a positive test result. The negative likelihood ratio is one minus your sensitivity value over your specificity. Uh, so the sensitivity always comes first and the specificity is always in the denominator here. Uh, and the negative likelihood ratio is used for a negative test result. So this is the probability of changing the odds or not favoring a condition with a negative test results. Um, so if we want an example for those, um, so for a positive likelihood ratio, um, maybe you have a uh, pneumonia and cough. So if uh, you have a cough, so this is our positive. So if you have the cough, um, the odds that you have pneumonia are pretty high, right? So if you do not have a cough, so flipping the narrative now, then you probably do not have pneumonia. Uh, reason for that is like in 90, 95% of cases or something extreme, patients with pneumonia have a cough. So if you do not have a cough, you pretty much do not have pneumonia. Um, so that would be an example for the positive likelihood ratio. The negative, uh, you could say maybe like a pap smear in cervical cancer. If you do not, basically if you're... Um, pap smear is negative, then you probably don't have anything going on. If you have a positive pap smear, then it would say something is probably going on, um, just to kind of add a little context to that. So you're going to take that likelihood ratio that you calculate and use a nomogram. You can Google one of these. Uh, it's just basically a fancy table. And you're essentially just drawing a line you're connecting the dots from pretest probability and likelihood ratio and drawing it over to post-test prob probability. Uh, you're going to want to pull up a picture of a nomogram if you have never seen one before for that. Um, but basically, you can use those nomograms uh, for all of this different information. So for the study that we're talking about here with the frailty, um, they looked at, so one of the things was gate speed. Um, so the probability for gate speed uh, being under six seconds was 10%. So um, they took that from the 
literature, I believe, they have 40 people out of 380 met that criteria, so about 10% in total. Um, so that would be your pretest probability is 10%. So you can go through all the other variables and determine your pretest probability. And then you can do, uh, you can take your likelihood ratio and determine a post-test probability uh, based on that. Cool. So did they do that? Well, of course, they had a post-test probability. And if you're looking at the article, you're probably saying, well, duh, it's right there. Um, so what they found is gate speed was sensitive and specific and grip strength was sensitive and specific um, for uh, frailty in this case. However, what's cool is using both gate speed and grip strength was found to be more precise, specific, and sensitive than other combinations for determining frailty. Um, I believe the exact numbers were like um, the gate speed alone and the, oh, I've got them right here. Um, so looking at the likelihood ratios and the pretest, post-test probability here for the gate speed, uh, you're looking at a 16.2 pretest. Oh, no, the likelihood ratio was 16.2. You had a 10% pretest probability. So the post-test probability was 65 to 70%. And the same for grip strength is true. It was about 65 to 70%. So for both of these, you had a post-test probability on their own of about 65 to 70%. Well, when you combine the likelihood ratio for gate speed and grip strength, you get a likelihood ratio of 103. So if you look at your post-test probability now with a likelihood ratio of 103, so this is if you measure both gate speed and grip strength in clinic, you jump up to somewhere between 90 and 95% post-test probability. 90 to 95%. Wouldn't you rather be 90 to 95% sure of things than 65 or 70% sure? Um, so it's amazing how some of these different statistical analyses can really give you such a clear picture of what the heck is going on. Um, and if you wouldn't mind holding on for about 10 more minutes, we've got one last article to do. I know this is a long one and it might be a little boring, but if you're following along, hopefully it's interesting to you. Um, and with that too, it's very helpful to know how to do research articles and read and break these down so you can get information directly from the source. I can guarantee you that most major news uh, stations and outlets do not have people who can break these down and fully understand these like we are doing right now and as you're learning how to do them right now. Um, so this last article is, uh, what do we got? Lower extremity forced decrements identified uh, early mobility decline among community dwelling older adults. So lower extremity forced decrements identify early mobility decline among community dwelling older adults. And this is by Marco, uh, Moshe Marco. I believe this was published in 2012, September. Uh, this is in the Physical Therapy Journal, I believe. Cool. 
So another somewhat long one, 14 pages. Highly recommend pulling it up because it won't make sense if you don't have it. But so essentially um, they were use, uh, just kind of giving you the rundown on the tests. Uh, they used some t-tests here. Um, they looked at um, t-tests for things like age, which was a continuous measurement. They used uh, categorical measurements like a chi-square for the comorbidities like cardiovascular disease. Um, they used um, logistic regression and um, instead of linear regression. And the reason for that is the logistic regression is, a, is meant for nominal or categorical data, uh, which is usually the dependent variable. Uh, so looking at this article, what is the purpose of this article? Um, so essentially, you have this health condition, so lower extremity, muscle strength, and functional deficits. You have the activity limitation of what are you doing with on a daily basis, uh, activities of daily living, uh, daily tasks, that sort of thing. And you're looking at the structure of different muscle groups. Uh, so, you know, we're looking at the question of does the impairment in the lower extremity muscle strength, so leg muscle strength, change your activity level? Um, and this is something, the reason I'm bringing this up is it seems very straightforward, right? You would think more strength would lead to better activity level and better ability to do things, right? That makes sense. However, you cannot make that assumption. Just because someone is stronger does not mean that they're going to be more active or have better ability to do things or that sort of thing. So don't make that assumption. Uh, so with that, there's a lot of things that they controlled for in this study. We talked about this before um, in the uh, low back pain article. So in this study, they controlled for age, different comorbidities, cognitive function, uh, chronic diseases. Um, they might have missed like racial, like I don't think they reported the race breakdown or the geographic location, but that's about it from what I'm seeing. They did pretty good picking up on things. Um, and I would say that this level of, you know, inclusion, exclusion is very appropriate since they're checking strength training, which obviously different pathologies have a vast impact on strength of muscles. Um, so obviously, if you have different neuropathies or um, different diseases like that, your muscles might not, might not even be working. Uh, they might not fire. So obviously, if your muscles can't get the nerve supply uh, or the electricity they need to be powered, uh, they're not going to really exhibit much strength. Uh, so it's good that they differentiated like that. Um, one other thing, they kind of got all their subjects kind of on a word of mouth kind of thing. Um, you know, not a broad collection of people who know others really for the most part. Um, so with that, they, uh, were they were significantly different at baseline when they looked at baseline function. The two groups, the groups that they were measuring uh, had significant differences, which that's obviously a, you know, eyebrow raise. Normally you want the groups to be similar and close to one another. 
uh, or nearly identical, identical as you can make them, right? Um, so that's kind of a big thing there too. Um, and they're looking at the uh, lower extremity strength, like we said, and um, they're kind of looking at the lower extremity as a whole instead of like, you know, one specific muscle group here, one specific muscle group there, that sort of thing, right? Um, so looking at the combinations of the muscle groups. Um, so they also came up with different threshold numbers. Um, so they use these threshold numbers to determine um, like if strength was like a threshold of strength, determining, a, determining if a patient was a task modifier or not. So what that means is, you know, it did the patient's level of strength um, correlate with if they have to modify what they do or no. Um, and the thing too you have to remember is going back to study design is they measured strength in this study via a biodex and a handheld dynamometer. So that takes a little bit of time to do. Um, obviously, those that equipment is pretty expensive. Um, you know, most physical therapy clinics don't have biodexes laying around. Um, you know, you might see the handheld dynamometer, but that's probably about it. Um, and I also want to add too, you know, you're looking at a relation between strength and task modifying. So what does that mean? Maybe your strength is strong enough. So does that mean you should still intervene with someone because they're strong enough um, and they're not modifying their tasks or anything like that on a daily basis? Um, or with that, can you use the different information that they determine, the different thresholds of strength um, to determine who you should intervene early with. So maybe someone is at that threshold. Maybe you should start doing more exercise with them. Maybe they're below that threshold and now your eyebrows go up and you're like, oh my gosh, we got to get this person moving. Um, maybe they're trending down, but still above. Maybe they're trending up and you're not doing anything. Um, so kind of thinking about what this means and how you can apply it. Uh, and this is, you know, for anyone in health, fitness and medicine right here. Uh, if you're looking at this article and familiar with it. Um, so, sorry, I'm like running out of breath here. We're almost done. Um, biggest limitation I saw with this study, I don't know if I talked about limitations yet or not, but basically all studies have kind of pitfalls or where they fall short, right? So the limitation I see for this study is the strength values might not be generalizable because... Again, Biodex, we don't all have one of them laying around. You go to most gyms and they won't have one. Uh, they also did not do any blinding to those who participated in the study or those who gave, uh, gave and assessed the strength measurements. So maybe some people got a little extra motivation, like, come on, you can do this, one more, push through it, and some people didn't. And you might not think that would have a um, impact, but it really does. Um, that the extrinsic motivation factor can be very strong and powerful, and the research backs that up. Um, so this is one article that you know, cool. I kind of like what they were going for here, but you know, 
I don't see a easy way to use and implement that. And maybe I'm wrong and maybe you disagree with me and that is totally okay. We don't have to agree on everything. Um, but I do hope that that little rundown on some different articles kind of helps you get a better understanding of how to look at uh, scientific articles and research and literature and that sort of thing. And obviously, if this podcast episode goes well, then I will do another one like it. Um, this is not really what I would call fun per se, but it is super important to know as I demonstrated with the COVID vaccine uh, data and that sort of thing. You know, how are you going to be able to determine if the studies are good or not if you can't read a study? Uh, and there's a lot of practice that goes into this. So hope this was helpful. Uh, feel free to like, subscribe. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Bronbody, Bron with a W. Thank you again for listening to my awful voice for about 50 minutes today. Wow. Uh, hope you have a great day. And for those of you who are students, good luck with the rest of your final, final exams. Take care.